Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Well, that was an interesting primetime TV night. We're not talking about Monday night football. Last night, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton met for the first of three presidential debates. Were you one of the millions who tuned in? We want to hear from you. We'll take your calls, your tweets, your emails throughout the show. Here's the number, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. There's also our email, Where We Live at WNPR. We're going to jump right in. Happy to have WNPR's Colin McEnroe here. Hi, Colin. Good morning. And also Dr. Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hillier College at the University of Hartford. Welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Before we open up the show to callers, reacts from both of you. Was this the debate you were expecting? Colin? I don't think anybody had any way of expecting any particular debate. Uh, I, th- I think the, the, debate, the, the debate that we saw um, surprised me in a lot of ways. I, I mean, I'll just sort of say oh, as an overview, I, I think the night did go to Clinton. Uh, most of the polling seems to back that up. The CNN ORC overnight poll is very lopsided to 62-27. I think that's kind of uh, misleading. There's a PPP uh, poll from overnight that's 51 40, I think. Uh, Frank Lund's support group, uh, Frank Lund's uh, focus groups uh, also gave it to Clinton. Even the betting markets, which change in real time over the course of the debate, seem to give it to Clinton. And, and I think what you will see after this debate, too, is a bump in her polls. Now, I'll just quickly get a little wonky about that and say there's something called a differential non-response rate, which means that if you think your candidate won, which I think most Clinton supporters are thinking today, you're more likely to participate in a poll. If you're uh, if you're a Trump uh, voter or Trump supporter and you're kind of lying in a fetal position today wondering what happened, and we can talk uh, about what, what happened, you're less likely to take the call or to go through with the poll. So watch your numbers go up and then take about two points off uh, what happened there. But I, for a whole bunch of reasons, which I, I'm, I can't wait to hear what everybody else has to say, it really did seem to be a little bit lopsided in her favor, at least over the last 30 to 40 minutes of the debate. In many ways, I think Collins probably being generous. I thought that was just a beatdown, to be honest. (laughs) You know, I had the pleasure of watching that debate with a group of about 100 undergraduate students at the University of Hartford, uh, organized, a class of mine organized a debate party with pizza, and we got tremendous turnout. And what I was amazed by was watching the students react to the debate. And, you know, as Hillary Clinton talked, and she made her points about a range of different issues compared to what Donald Trump was talking about when asked the same question. I was astonished by the reaction on the part of the students. And what astonished me about it was that these are not young people who necessarily are policy wonks. They don't have a great deal of depth of knowledge about all of the issues that are out there. But their impressions of the candidates and what they had to say and how they responded to the questions and the way in which they reacted to each other um, it was clear. It was a clear-cut victory for Hillary Clinton, and so I think, in many ways, it was a beatdown, and not just a a little by a little bit, but quite a bit. It's interesting. Both of you say that depending on who the person is supporting, you see your candidate as winning the debate. How is this debate and this climate in this campaign season different from other presidential races in the terms of you know the the number of undecideds that are out there? 
Uh, a couple of things about that. First of all, um, it's not necessarily the case that you always do do see your candidate is winning the debate. For example, you just have to go back one cycle. There were a lot of people who understood that Barack Obama badly, badly lost his first debate against Mitt, Mitt Romney. I was one of them. I mean, he just he wasn't himself. He was terrible. That didn't necessarily make people switch their vote. Uh, it gave Romney a, a, a kind of a big momentary swing in the polls, which obviously we know did not last. He is not the president of the United States. So you can certainly be a supporter of one candidate and understand that he or she lost. Um, I, so, so there's that. Now, your question is about undecided voters. This is an unusual cycle in the sense that the mix of persuadable voters is much bigger. It's two to three times bigger than what you see in a typical cycle. It's not all people who declare themselves as undecided, though. We're talking about some people who are flirting with third-party candidacies. Historically, the, those numbers don't hold together. When people get to the polls, they tend, they not all of them, but a lot of them defect and, and pick one of the two major party candidates. Last night, by the way, in terms of showcasing just two candidates, will further that drive. So you've got soft support for both Clinton and Trump, you know, people who are voting essentially against another candidate, not in love with the candidate. You've got the people flirting with the third party, and then you have genuine undecideds. They make up a mix of persuadables from last night. How many are actually persuaded by what they see is the, probably the question we have to wait for. And I think a lot of the you know political science research suggests that most people, even the ones who say that they're un- undecided, actually lean in a certain direction. The number of people who are sort of pure undecideds who really don't know which direction they're going to go in, they're not a huge number of people. And I think, even though I think last night was a beatdown, at the same time, will that have any effect on Clinton supporters or on Trump supporters, I think, is a different question. I think for many Trump supporters who are hardcore supporters, uh, as long as he didn't go out there, fall over the stage, and, and just mumble to himself, the guy did well. And, and it's not going to change their opinion of him. It won't change their opinion, especially of Hillary Clinton, because I think the the angst against Hillary Clinton is fairly strong. And so regardless of what Donald Trump's performance was, regardless of what her Trump what her performance was, you're probably not going to see a lot of movement. And so in that sense, I don't think the polls are going to change all that much. Most people have made their minds up about who they're going to decide to vote for. And the question is, will folks who support, for example, Gary Johnson decide, you know, I just can't take the risk that Donald Trump wins, and so I'm just going to have to bite my lip and vote for Hillary Clinton? This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me, Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford, and WNPR's own Colin McEnroe. We're talking about last night's debate. What did you think? 860-275-7266. Again, that number, 860-275-7266. We got an email from Jillian uh, who wrote, I'd love to hear your panel's take on Trump's continued references to, quote, good people and, quote, bad people. It's something that she's noticed over the course of the campaign, and to her, it indicates an inability or unwillingness to understand nuance and differing perspectives. It's also non-measurable in terms of things like gun policy, immigration, etc. Uh, what do you think about that, Colin? There are times when he uses that kind of language that sounds like he's reading from some kind of fairly bizarre children's book. I will say, however, that um, that nuance uh, works both ways. Um, not every voter is nuanced. In some ways, using very visceral language that kind of hits the limbic system, uh, it, it's not a terrible technique. Um, it's not going to persuade sophisticated voters to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, reading uh, like the New York Times or something like that. But for a certain kind of voter, and he understands that it worked relatively relatively well for him during the primary cycle. So, yes, at times it, it really does sound like he's talking to third graders. There may be some people who are moved by that, though. Yeah. I think there's a core uh, that's a part of his base who really do see 
many of these things in black and white terms. And so to that extent, he is appealing to uh, their thought process, which is to sort of see good, bad, to see good decisions made by government officials or bad decisions made by government officials. And there's no sort of gray area anywhere between that. We simply, if we just look, you know, got tougher, we'd solve these problems with whether it's immigration, whether it's our, our dealing with Iran, whether it's our dealing in Syria, whether it's our dealing with anyone in the world. It's just a matter of being tough or not being tough. And he's a candidate who believes he can be tough, make the decisions that need to be made, and the problems will be solved. You know, speaking of black and white, a lot of people are wondering how is race going to be discussed uh, during last night's debate. Let's hear a clip from Trump when he was asked about racial healing. How do we fix a divided country? We need law and order. And we need law and order in the inner cities because the people that are most affected by what's happening are African-American and Hispanic people. And it's very unfair to them what our politicians are allowing to happen. Do you think he made any inroads with uh, Hispanic and and African-American voters? I I doubt that he did. I will say that I thought, uh, as I was kind of scoring the debate, this was an area where Clinton got weak for a little while. She, um, her her answer, because you heard what his answer is. It's again very stark, very visceral kinds of language. Easy, nobody's confused about what he's saying, uh, at least about that. Um, she wandered around a little bit. This is partly because she needs to talk to several different constituencies at once. She's got to talk to a certain kind of white voter who doesn't want to hear, who doesn't want an omission anyway of some kind of law order message. She's also uh, working very hard on her support among black voters, which is it's soft right now, particularly young young, uh, African-American voters. I mean, she's not going to do as well as President Obama, but she can't afford afford to do as badly. So, you know, she she wandered a little bit. Uh, She had details, but not a vision for a while. Then she started talking about stuff that I think was and Bilal, I think we'll have stuff to say about this, too, that that was very much aimed at African-American voters. There were a couple moments where I thought she was like just practically quoting from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Um, so that was very much a message to them. But th- I thought that was a little bit of a soft, weak part of her debate response. She was so eager to please about three or four constituencies at once that it sounded like she didn't have a central vision. Whereas Trump, whatever you think about his central vision, you know what it is. It's law and order. Right. You know, what strikes me, you know, from the very first time Trump went down this path, and I thought it was pretty telling when he, in response to her point about the lawsuit from the early 70s, he says, about these inroads he's been trying to make with the African-American community. And essentially, he described it as within the last few recent <laughs> months, times. You know, and so clearly that just shows you just how transparent this really is, that this really is not an appeal to African-Americans. It's an appeal to well-educated white voters who he really struggles with trying to get support um, because of the things he's, he's said about uh, Latinos and about immigration. And, and I think this sort of dystopian vision he has of, of growing up in black America, someone who grew up poor in the city of Detroit, who's been able to, you know, uh, find himself teaching at a university here in the, in the Northeast, the University of Hartford. And it's been, a, you know, for me at least, an amazing journey. And I sort of think about that world he paints of a black community that looked nothing like the one I grew up in, which was poor. But if I go on his vision of black America, every day I woke up, I had to dodge bullets. And, you know, I carried my Uzi in my backpack while I dodged drug dealers and prostitutes and 
And and that's the image that he paints. And I think, unfortunately, that's an image that far too many people in suburbia white America who don't sort of go into black communities, don't interact much with blacks. You know, polls show that a significant number of Trump supporters, one of the best predictors of who is a Trump supporter is the extent to which they are racially isolated. And so to the extent that they have these dystopian visions and Trump sort of reaffirms that vision, it's just unfortunate, but it really shows just how much uh, distant he actually is from the reality of, of life in African-American communities and as well as Latino communities in America today. There was a trope going on around Twitter last night where African-American people on, who were tweeting were saying, I'm African-American and I don't live in hell. And, and in general, if you tell people that they live in hell, uh, even if they have days where they think right. that, uh, if you're a very rich white man telling people that they live in hell, it doesn't go over that well. I did wonder, and it'll be interesting to see if there's any kind of granular post-polling on this, where there's some African-American voters who are very concerned about crime in their neighborhood came away from that debate thinking, well, he really does, he understands, you know, we've got a murder problem here. He's talking about what he would do about it. Uh, you know, she wasn't really maybe being quite as specific or as emphatic about that part. So, you know, you asked the question, would anybody get persuaded by any of that? I, you know, I, I think it would be a small number of people, but some maybe. But I think the difference is we've had about five decades now of law and order, which has not worked, <laughs> which has resulted in mass incarceration, which has resulted essentially the criminalization of black and brown people in America. And so to hear a major party candidate stand up and say, Hillary Clinton has missed two important words, law and order. I thought to myself, is this what Richard Nixon sounded like back in <laughs> 1968? And are we having a replay of that today in our you know, current presidential party? And that's the absence of nuance, right? Mm -hmm. That's the absence of talking about putting people to work in central cities, dealing with failing schools and other problems in central cities, and that being a part of a holistic approach and reforming the criminal justice system. And we're just not hearing that out of Donald Trump. And so this sort of uh, outreach to African-Americans and Latino communities really falls hollow to me. Let's take some calls. Uh, uh, Reverend Damaris Whitaker is on the phone joining Where We Live. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. So what was your take? So I, I had two very specific points because I know we don't have a lot of time. Um, you know, the, the point of the economic uh, wage gap I don't think that either candidate really uh, deliberated or debated that very well. In, in a church where we see people who are employed but yet still have to come for a meal once a week, or people who struggle to put together a security deposit, although they are employed, that is a huge issue that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. And I would have liked to hear a little bit more about closing that wage gap. And I have to say, you know, as a woman and, and a person of color, this debate was very injurious, and, and this season has been absolutely feeling longer than it should uh, feel. But in terms of um, the things that were said uh, last night, um, you know, we asked our first nominated a woman to, um, to explain look and stamina, which we, ne we would never do with a man. We... Uh, we, there's, there's moments where there was pride in um, questioning the legitimacy of our first African-American uh, president. Mexico was mentioned three times in the first two minutes of this debate with accusations or, of stealing our jobs. And then uh, just a few minutes later, we were told that American companies are leaving willingly because we do not, cannot retain them here. So there were quite a few contradictions last night. And in answer to this racial divide, we respond, you know, as one of the panelists was just uh, referring to, this concept of law and order and this concept of, of saying, I say nothing to the communities of color. And that, to me, um, does not bring this, this country together. 
And I hope in this election we are empowered to vote with integrity and with concern for all, but especially with concern for the poor and the disenfranchised. And stand against, let, let our vote be uh, a stand against bigotry and division. And But first and foremost, and most importantly, we should all vote. Well, thank you for your take, Damaris. Um, I want to take another call now. And the number, 860-275-7266. Again, we want to get your reaction to last night's debate. Ed is calling from Orange, Connecticut. Oh, Ed is not there, so let's try uh, Alexander from Guilford. Alexander, are you there? Hi there. Um, a lot of people have commented on uh, Trump's lack of preparation for this debate, um, but I don't think this is just a, a recent thing um, that he's not paying attention to these issues. Um, in listening last night, it really struck him, sorry, struck me, that Trump has uh, formed a lot of ideas in the 1980s um, at his height, and uh, he hasn't really updated them since. The levels of crime that he's talking about in our urban communities and our inner cities, he's talking about perhaps 1980s levels of crime, ignoring the fact that crime's been going down for like 25 years, talking about the competitive nature of the Japanese economy versus ours, about how they're killing us or eating our own lunch, or however he said that. The Japanese economy has had problems for well over a decade. It's back in the 80s with movies like Gung Ho, um, in which we were uh, worried about the Japanese um, vis-a-vis our economy, but it's been a long time, and it seems that a lot of his worldview is is simply decades old. All right. Well, thank you for your perspective. Uh, do you agree that uh, you know, Trump really has just remained outdated and stuck with his, uh, you know, his track record and his experience uh, as someone who boasts what he has done versus what could be done for this country? I think it's a really interesting observation. And and one thing we do know from inside the campaign, I mean, this kind of leaks out constantly, is that, that he's just sort of not a good student, right? They can't get him to sit still. He can't read a briefing book. They can't even let him get him to sit still so they can tell him stuff that he will listen to. So, uh, yeah, maybe watching movies like Rising Sun or something back in the 1980s has stuck with him better than anything that's been said to him in the last few weeks. What I was sort of struck by, though— it's interesting because t- this morning David Green was asking uh, Robbie Mook, uh, the Clinton campaign manager, uh, he was saying, well, you know, she she has a reputation as kind of a policy wonk. Is there anything she can do about that? She just comes across such a policy wonk last night. I didn't think that was the case last night. I mean, she was strong on policy when she needed to be. But basically what Clinton did last night to a remarkable degree is make Trump skate backwards, right? I mean, he spent the entire night answering questions or dealing with issues about his tax return his birtherism, how he made his money, whether he cheated people who worked for him, what he said about women, what kind of language he used, you know, whether or not most of his money came from his father, whether he's got any money now. This was all, uh, he was kind of on the defensive. And because he's kind of a thin-skinned guy and and does maybe overreact to that, that kind of stuff, he really, he spent most of the night skating backwards, not so much on policy points, not that there weren't any in the debate, but on stuff that, in some ways, you think about, he's kind of good at ad hominem attacks, at personal attacks. Um, she got very good at that last night and, and kind of kept him moving backwards. Right. I mean, in many ways, she was very well prepared. I mean, there were some zingers she got in that, you know, clearly were rehearsed, and she waited for that right moment to um, unleash them on him, and I thought she was very effective in doing that. You know, the earlier caller talked about uh, as a woman candidate running for office and dealing with questions about looks and stamina, I think is you know just very important. I think there's been an element of sexism that's been attached to this campaign from 
the very beginning. It doesn't get talked about enough, I think, in part because we, you know, as we've sort of pushed with the idea of being post-racial, we want to push past the idea that, you know, this is still a, a factor that affects, you know, opportunities for women in our society. I mean, the kind of bluster and the kind of machoism that, you know, was on display that Trump has traveled the country doing. Um, you know, that gets celebrated when men do that kind of thing. And then Hillary, you know, um, comes and, be, and tries to be forceful in how she presents her ideas and, and the things she wants to do. And there's a different interpretation. And one of the things that struck me as I watched the debate and it dragged on for seemed like a lot longer than an hour and a half. What I was amazed by was the way in which Trump lost energy towards the end. Mm-hmm. And so I thought in many ways, if one were to make, be critical about stamina and that split screen and critical about look, you know, Trump clearly didn't look the best and he didn't demonstrate the most stamina. And so even on that point, I thought, you know, Hillary Clinton actually won as far, you know, even beyond just the content of the debate itself. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel in studio with uh, Bilal Sadku from the University of Hartford, a political scientist, and WNPR's Colin McEnroe. Forget what the pundits are saying. We want to hear from you. Are you sticking by your candidate after last night's debate? Were you undecided up until last night? What helped you make your decision? And we have lots of calls uh, waiting, so we just ask for your patience. We'll take them when we come back from the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you watched last night's debate, we want to hear from you. That number, 860-275-7266. Again, the first showdown between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. That debate had three very wide-ranging themes, achieving prosperity, securing America, and America's direction. How did you think the candidates did describing their plans for leading our country? Again, join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I want to take some calls now. Uh, Linda is calling. Linda, you're on Where We Live. Hi. I just have a comment about my concern that Hillary has to be perceived as likable. And my point is, I'm not electing a best friend as president. I'm looking for someone who is knowledgeable, experienced, and level-headed. And why isn't Trump held to these standards? Why is Clinton's likability even a factor? Thank you very much. Thank you for your call. Below. That goes to my point about the difference, uh, the way in which women are looked at and the way men are looked at. And, you know, certainly this issue of likability just doesn't come up for Trump the way it comes up for Hillary Clinton. This is something that's dogged her for a number of years. And I think there's a great deal of sexism that's attached to that point. It's, you know, obviously it is something that's come up over and over again. It came up in 2008, and Barack Obama had famously that moment where he went, well, you're likable enough, Hillary. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's not fair. On the other hand, it's the reality. And, and one of the things I was going to build on something that Bilal, Bilal said earlier, which is that, you know, voters make a lot of decisions based on ent- almost entirely on nonverbal cues. There are uh, political science slash neuroscience studies by people like Drew Weston. Sometimes it's within, you know, 5, 10, 20. 20 seconds of seeing a picture of somebody or two people. People make decisions on who they're going to vote for. So nonverbal cues are really important. I mean, we haven't really said this yet, but last night, you know, forget about likability for a second, just people just reading the body language and behavior of another person. Last night was kind of a bad night for Donald Trump. Bilal said, you know, first of all, his energy seemed to sag in the last half hour. Uh, His speech patterns became more rambling and and less responsive to the questions. There was the sniffing. We haven't mentioned the sniffing. (laughs) 
shopping yet today. Uh, and there were, I mean, it seemed in, in the early going, I was watching this on a big screen on an undiluted feed, uh, which means, I mean, you, you never want anyone to look at you that way. You can really, really see a person, uh, in, you know, in, in quite a bit of detail. At the beginning, there were a lot of signs that he was tremendously nervous, uh, which is not something we associate with Donald Trump. Uh, maybe even a little bit of a shake. Uh, and early on, the sniffing seemed to be related to a problem in regulating his breathing, you know, a lot of gulping of water and stuff like that. Then he kind of hit a stride for a while, and then his energy actually started to sag quite a bit. Clinton, by contrast, in terms of nonverbal cues, it seemed to me all night she was ready to go perform brain surgery. She just seemed pretty <laughs> steady. Uh, she knew when to smile and how to react uh, in a way that's, that was not overweening but appropriate to the moment. She didn't seem any more tired after 95 minutes than she did you know, going in there. So, you know, in, in a lot of those ways, the, the nonverbal reads that people make on people may have a lot to do with how that debate is perceived last night. Take another call now. Galena is calling from Waterford. Galena, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Thanks for having me. What was your question or comment? Um, I just wanted to make a comment on how Hillary's position on the TPP seems to be working against her. Um, you know, I feel that she had one position on it because she didn't have the full details of what TPP would entail. And then upon realizing uh, more details about the uh, partnership she then changed her mind to suit her values as a rational adult would. And I think that it's really unfair now that she has been accused of flip-flopping and not, um, you know, and not being true to her values and her core, while uh, Trump seems to be the king of flip-flopping and changing his mind on things. I'm surprised he hasn't given himself a concussion because he flip-flops so much. And I just think that the double standard that they're being held to in that regard is really unfair. I also very much did not appreciate how Rosie O'Donnell was dragged back into this debate and her and fat shaming comments were employed. I really didn't appreciate that. And I thought it was super unprofessional. And I'm just disappointed um, that that was brought up again. Can I say something about that? I I just know about the Rosie O'Donnell thing, but I'm going to respectfully disagree with you about the TPP stuff. Look, I I think, you know, yeah, you don't want there to be two standards, but you don't want there to be two standards the other way. I I think Trump has to be rigorously fact checked and held to all the things that he said last night that weren't true. And there was a passel of them. There was a wagon load of them. But I don't think, I think actually Clinton has to own that gold standard remark. I don't think people are going to give her the kind of latitude that you're talking about. And I'm not even necessarily sure that they should. She did use the phrase gold standard about the TPP. I don't know that you can necessarily walk away from that all that easily. She didn't have many of those moments last night. She didn't have anything like the preponderance of moments that Trump had last night. But for that reason, you don't want to set up a a situation where everything that Trump says that's not true or that is contradicted by something he says has said in the past uh, he's held accountable for and then you still want to make a little room for clinton on those very few occasions where she doesn't really stand up that well to rigorous fact checking we got a tweet from brendan uh, who wrote it's the longest i'd ever watched trump speak and he wanted to know um oh and i just lost it here so uh, it's the longest i've ever watched trump speak how does he have any supporters at all what is he talking about so that speaks to what you were saying colin that he just seems to be all over the place. I mean, that's a really good question. I think one of the things that really struck me about watching last night, you know, Donald Trump speaks in platitudes. He has great phrases, make America great. He, you know, he says these things and he does it on the, uh, while he's out speaking. And, you know, even the way he presented last night and, and, and the way he talks, he repeats himself. And these are, you know, things you do when you want applause lines and, and people respond to. In a way, I thought he was 
talking and he was hoping that the audience would start to cheering and applauding the way they do out on the on the when he's out on the speaking tour. The problem, of course, with that is that there's the sound bites and then there's the substance. And what amazed me about watching him is that even he even struggled with two minutes of real depth and conversation. I mean, and he found, particularly in the early part, he repeated himself. And I think towards the end, he started to ramble. He would, you know, sort of jump from topic to topic. And it was pretty amazing um, to say he was underprepared for that, I think, is an understatement. And, you know, the, and I think, you know, going into this second debate, the, the folks around him, hopefully they will be able to impress upon him that he's, in, he's at war right now with someone who is very capable, who has great depth and knowledge of the issues, and that he's just got to come much better prepared and ready to do battle than he was last night. It's probably worth mentioning that you know his success was forged in an environment where there were 10 other people on stage at minimum with him. Uh, so what would happen during those Republican primary debates is that he could say something uh, and that at a much more detailed and nuanced level, that something might be thrashed out between, say, Rand Paul and Marco Rubio, have a larger command of the details. He could drift off into some reverie about something Kelly Ripa said to him uh, you know, five years ago. Uh, and they, they wouldn't get back to him for 20, 25 minutes because yeah. there were so many candidates on stage. So last night, yeah, that's a yeah. different animal last night. It's just two people out there. you got nowhere to hide. We got an uh, email from Doug who writes, Donald Trump thinks about everything in terms of money. Hillary should have responded more to his comments. We have a clip, uh, number eight here, where Trump is talking about his experience as a businessman. I am very underleveraged. I have a great company. I have a tremendous income. And the reason I say that is not in a braggadocious way. It's because it's about time that this country had somebody running it that has an idea about money. When we have $20 trillion in debt and our country's a mess, you know, it's one thing to have $20 trillion in debt and our roads are good and our bridges are good and everything's in great shape. Our airports, our airports are like from a third world country. And that just kind of threw me. Our airports are like a third world country. He's, again, making the point that he's a businessman. He can take this country back into the black. Um, did you think that, you know, he's, he's making that argument? And, and part of painting that picture that he's a successful businessman and that he can bring the country back is he also needs to paint a picture of the country being a mess, the airports, you know. So this dystopian vision that he has. And, and to be quite honest, I think as he travels the country, there are lots of people he's out there talking to who also feel like not just that America's on the rat, wrong path, that America has really gone down a road of no return in many ways, and we're in a struggle for survival here. And so he paints that picture, and he really presents himself as someone who can ride in on a white horse and save the country. And, uh, you know, sort of boasting about his accomplishments, what, he, what he's been able to do. To me, one of the more astonishing moments of the debate was, and it really took me aback, was when he was being pressed, about, pressed on about not paying taxes. And he just makes the comment that it, it makes him smart to not. And, you know, and for millions and millions of Americans who are complaining about their taxes and feeling overwhelmed by their bills, to hear someone sort of brag about their ability to not pay their fair share was just an astonishing moment, um, for me at least, in watching it.
It was it was a bet that he made. He may not have been aware that he was making that wager. He said things like that a couple of times. She accused him of having rooted for the housing market collapse so that he could buy property more cheaply. He said that just good business. That's called business. I think that was his exactly. phrase. And the same thing. Yes, he when she talked about him maybe not paying taxes, he said that would make me smart. Uh, he's thinking that for the kind of people who watch The Apprentice and think of him as this savvy businessman operating at, at a level higher than than theirs, uh, that that will impress them. Uh, whether it does or not. I I think it depends an awful lot on the person who's listening. I want to take a call now. Jason's calling from Simsbury. Jason, you're on Where We Live. Hi, great. Thanks for taking my call. Actually, this is perfect timing. I, I was wondering, based on the debate last night, if the panelists thought, did, did Donald Trump admit to tax evasion last night? And shouldn't he be prosecuted for that? <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I, I've heard that too. So, in other words, what you're saying is, at the end of uh, she really kind of torched him on the tax returns. It was one of the few times uh, that he didn't interrupt her. Uh, he interrupted her, I think, 25 times, something like that, last night. He didn't interrupt her. He kind of let her say her whole thing and and run through all the possible reasons why he might not be uh, releasing his tax returns. That he doesn't give that much to charity. He doesn't make that much money. He doesn't pay taxes. And and when she got to that, yeah, he did say this thing that would make me smart. Uh, um, and I don't know that that's a real actionable admission. I don't think, right. you know, Preet Bharara is, like, gearing up, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> a prosecution based on a, a throwaway joke at a, at a presidential debate. But at the same time, the you know, the, the kernel of truth that, you know, Trump's campaign and I think, you know, certainly Bernie Sanders' campaign unearth is just how rigged the system really is mm-hmm. and how much it really does favor um, the wealthy and the privileged and the powerful in our society. And so when Trump brags about not paying taxes, he's bragging about something that, uh, that you know, people who are part of his privileged class are able to get away with. And it's a part of the angst that really fuels a lot of the supporters that are out there for him. And so, again, it's amazing that he's able to brag about the way in which he's been able to get around paying his fair share and and wears that as a badge of honor, but it's really a reflection of what is a real deep-rooted problem that exists in our society that many Americans are upset about today. I want to take another call. Darlene's calling from Thomaston. Darlene, you're on Where We Live. Thank you. Good morning. I would like to say that I I think it's hysterical that it's still being held like a high school popularity contest and people are calling in, is Hillary more likable, is he more likable, and we're, we're um, not being fair to Hillary I have to tell you, I'm a Trump supporter, but I have to say I do not like him. As a person, he doesn't come across to me as somebody that I would like if he lived next door. However, everybody I know that's voting for him is not voting for him because they like him. It doesn't matter who you like. As a woman called in earlier, it's who can bring forth the changes that we need. And unfortunately, I know the problem the country has is everybody's needs are different. Here in Connecticut... Our needs may be different than the rest of the country. Our needs are we need to keep our jobs here. We need, we need to – we want to be safe. And everybody I know that has big companies, they're all – my kids, friends in school, they're, oh, they're moving to South Carolina. They're moving to North Carolina. They're moving. They're, they're, everybody's leaving. The senior citizens that have raised their kids here and lived here their whole lives are forced to sell their homes and go to Florida because they can't pay the taxes on a house that they paid off 50 years ago. We can't afford to live in this state. We, want, we don't mind paying our fair share taxes. I own a business, and I'm so close to closing it every day because even though I don't mind paying my fair share, 
it's not being used for what I think it should be used for. Can I, can I, ask, you, yeah. can I ask you just a quick, quick question? Because I'm just curious. Why mm-hmm. do you think the president of the United States would equalize that? In other words, you're not talking about jobs going to Indonesia. You're talking about jobs going from Connecticut to Florida. Why do you think that any president, I mean, I, I didn't hear Trump really address what he would do about any of that problem. About He talked a lot about well, jobs going overseas. They're leading but, the state and but, they're leading the country. Right. And by having incentives for keeping businesses in the United States, I'm hoping that our the Democrats that we have in office in Connecticut will see the light and start making um, deals to keep businesses here in Connecticut as well. Gotcha. And Darlene, you said it's not about liking the candidate, but can I ask you, do you like Hillary Clinton? Um, Not particularly, but I have to say, unfortunately, I believe to get where these people get to, they're going to step on a lot of toes and say the wrong things. I can't imagine that they get there and can remain likable to everybody. All right, Darlene, thank you so much for your call. I want to take one more call before we go to break. Xavier, you've been on hold for a while for New Haven. Xavier, thank you for your patience. Thanks. Um, I guess it's something you talked about a little bit earlier, but the, the thing that struck me most was that Donald Trump's personal character that he can't really get over is his inability to back down on anything that he said before, and that really showed itself when he was asked about his pursuit of birtherism, and it struck me when he was asked about his sexist comments at the end. Not only did he double down, but he went further on on his comments about Rosie O'Donnell, saying that she actually deserved it. And that, I mean, that's, I don't know if that's a problem for him, because clearly people are voting for him regardless of whether they like him or not. But it's just that character, he can't get over it. He cannot back down on things. And he goes one step further, which is extraordinary for a presidential candidate. Uh, I can uh, add, sort of flesh out your understanding of that a little bit. Uh, in fact, this morning, Donald Trump appeared on Fox and Friends uh, by phone. I'm sure that his handlers were standing off to the side, hoping that he could put a pin back in a couple of these grenades. And he started talking about, I believe her name is Miss Machado, who had been Miss Universe. And he actually doubled down in exactly the way that you're describing. He doubled down on that statement. He said she was a big problem. She gained a lot of weight. She got really fat. <laughs> And you can actually see the hosts of Fox and Friends who were kind of trying to move on to a new topic, and he wouldn't let it go. He really needed to make that point that she got fat. Uh, And that is not going to play well with uh, all kinds of people. It'll play with people who have never, ever been on a diet, but that doesn't really include a whole lot of Americans. You know, one of the things I talk about you know, with my students about picking presidents is to talk about certainly issues and policies really do matter, but also character matters and people pay attention to these kinds of things and I mean it's something extraordinary about a person who really doubles down on such an odious statement like that statement that he made the comments about Rosie O'Donnell to suggest well she deserved it you know and and, and then to say well many people believe she most people believe she deserves it I mean it says something about the character of the person that I think you know is to me at least very alarming um, and something that, you know, under normal circumstances, uh, people would be paying a lot more attention to than what they're paying attention to now. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to take more of your phone calls, your emails, your tweets, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about last night's debate between Hillary Clinton 
and Donald Trump. In studio with me is WNPR's Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show, and Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. I want to start off by taking another call. Jared is calling from North Haven. Jared, you're on Where We Live. Hi, how are you? Good. So what would you think? So me, I'm completely undecided. Um, I think both are crazy um, nominees. And just after watching last night, I, I feel like I come to a decision and sort of trust Hillary. Um, I feel like she has an understanding of poverty, whereas um, Trump sort of is just has no understanding of poverty whatsoever. Um, and I'm just disappointed with the both of them, though, with, with the lack of etiquette in the debate. Um, and I feel so bad for Lester. I really hope he's resting today after last night. And Jared, you say that you're completely undecided. So what's it going to take for you to make your decision? I think I'm going to have to get a passport and move to Europe and just, I don't know. I, I really feel like this is a crazy election. I'm 28 years old. Um, I voted for Obama the first time he ran. And I've, I've heard the same promises, um, tax cuts for poor um, or middle class. And I just see nothing happening um, for the future. I don't see either of them doing anything better. I just think it's a lot of talk. But um, Hillary composed herself properly during the debate and provided facts. Um, Trump didn't even answer the first question. Lester had to repeat it. um, And he still didn't give an answer. So I just see where she has more of the facts um, and confidence when she was standing up there, where he is just loud and a bully. (laughs) All right, Jared, thank you for your call. Bilal, do you want to respond just quickly to what Jared was saying? Absolutely. You know, Jared's point about Lester Holt, and I, I just thought he did had a wonderful, uh, you know, debate presence. He was combative when he needed to be combative. He, you know, certainly said to you know folks when he thought they weren't being, you know, you know, answering the question and that they were trying to filibuster in some way that he really tried to pull them back. And so I thought in many ways he he created a model for what I hope will other you know, other debates and what they will look like in terms of the way he approached it. That's interesting because I forgot Lester Holt was even there watching the, the debate <laughs> last night. Yeah. Uh, but I can take another call now. Cody's calling from Hartford. Cody, you're on Where We Live. Hi, good morning. What's your take? You know, essentially, and I'm, I'm responding to some of the callers that have already called in and questioning or, or you know, I guess uh, bringing attention to the fact that this is more of a popularity contest than anything else. And, and my response to that would be, of course it is. Of course, it's a popularity contest. Of course, it's about likability because the, the concept that this, you know, that you should vote for a candidate that you think is going to be a better mechanism for change, ridiculous. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work. There's not going to be change. There's never change. And any incremental change, you know, certainly cannot be, I guess, you know, considered or, or brought out of these broad sweeping policy goals that have no chance from either candidate. So I think that. They rightfully spend their time practicing if they did practice and and spend their time you know talking in such a way as to make this about their likability because the the, the idea that it could be about anything else to me is uh, unrealistic. 
Cody, thank you for your call. Um, I, I will say, first of all, you're not entirely wrong. People tend, do tend to vote for people they like. I mean, that's not a profound statement. Um, you can certainly look at certain elections like 2000, where George W. Bush seemed to benefit from a likability factor over uh, Al Gore. You could probably say that about both of Ronald Reagan's elections as well. Although a lot of it depends on sort of the moment you're in, right? So Bill Clinton won an election in 1992, not so much on likability, but, but on the notion that it really was kind of time for a change. Uh, there were ways in which the economy was seriously underperforming. Uh, that gave him that particular opportunity to win. Um, it, when you come up to 2000, the economy is in really great shape. So the election is about something else at that point, and likability becomes more of a factor. In 2008, you know, I, I'm not sure that Barack Obama came across as more likable than John McCain, but we were about yet another one of those moments where there was an urgent need for change. Obama ran on change, uh, and this time around, there's less of an urgent need for change. The, obviously, the economy is rebounded, not not everywhere, not for everybody, but in every sector under Obama, the economy has come storming back. In general, our entanglements overseas are not as serious as they were in the past. It's harder to run on change. It's one of the reasons that Trump spends so much time ginning up the idea that we're in really, really terrible shape, which doesn't necessarily map that well onto reality. But he has to make that argument because he's a change candidate. We're running on the whole fear, the fear of where our country's going has really worked for him. I want to take another call. Sue's calling from Southbury. Sue, you're on where we live. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. What was your take last night? Well, I just had to call in because I was going to be one of the very few people who did not watch the debate. <laughs> um, but I honestly wasn't planning on it. But then at about 930, my curiosity got the better of me, and I tuned in only for about 20 minutes, um, right when... Trump was saying that it makes him smart that he didn't pay any taxes. Um, and I think some of the topics that I saw were, you know, the question um, about racism or racial tension in the country. Um, and I, I just wanted you guys to know, I was an avid, active Bernie supporter, you know, phone banking for him, canvassing, yard signs, etc. And I spent a lot of time just being very, very sad that apparently our country, you know, is not going to go that direction. Um, but I'll tell you, after 20 minutes, I am today signing up to work for the Clinton campaign. I am absolutely now convinced and convicted. Um, we just cannot let what I saw as a developmentally arrested egomaniac become president. <laughs> I mean, listening to him was like listening to five-year-olds throw a tantrum. Um, and I thought, honestly, you know, I'm not just voting against him or working against him. I thought Clinton did have some buttoned-up ideas. Maybe they need a little bit more fleshing out at this point. But um, I've I, I got to tell you, I just saw all of ridiculous, repetitive bluster, and it was just the, the term developmentally arrested just that was right there on display for me. Well, thank you, Sue, for your call. We just have five minutes. Bilal, well, do you want to respond right. quickly? Uh, you know, one of the things that will be interesting to me is that, as I said at the very beginning of the show, I sat and watched this um, debate with a group, a large group of undergraduate students. And so when I get back into my next two classes and I actually have a conversation with them about, you know, what they saw, for many of them, it was the first time they ever saw a presidential debate. I was astonished by the fact that many of them started in the beginning and probably about 80 percent of them stuck around all the way until the very end. And, you know, like the caller, um, you know, and based on their reaction, they were really struck by just the, the contrast between the two candidates. I think for a lot of them, they made their minds up as well last night in watching that debate. I want to take another call. Elaine's calling from Southington. Elaine, you're on where we live. We just have a couple of minutes. 
Okay. Uh, what I wanted to talk about was racism and sexism uh, with President Obama. Um, clearly, uh, after he was elected, the issues of race, of people not wanting to vote for a black uh, president, um, have been heightened to the point where now, you know, we're shooting people and we're talking about it. With Hillary, sexism, I think, will be the big thing, and she will bring out the prejudices of many people, many people against women. Um, and it will be a good thing because she's an awesome woman, as we saw last night, and um, uh, I'm going to support her and um, work very hard for her. Thank you, Elaine, for your call. Uh, Jack is calling from Wallingford. Jack, you're on Where We Live. Well, I was just like the other caller. I was, I was a Clinton supporter, uh, but I was kind of hedging on the, on the sidelines. But seeing her last night, I am really for her. I think we, that was the best we saw of Trump because he didn't have a vision for America. He was incoherent. He wasn't confident. And sometimes, quite frankly, he looked uncomfortable on the camera. He can criticize, yes, but he didn't have any plan. He didn't have any alternative. And I think this is the best we have seen of him because the only way he can get back is resorting to his antiques that made him win the primary and, quite frankly, is going to alienate a lot of voters. Thank you, Jack, for your call. And, and real quick, uh, Parker is also calling where we live. Parker, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Um, two things quickly. One was I was surprised, and maybe you covered it with Rosie, his response to a 400-pound person in their bed when he was talking about hacking. It could be anybody, which kind of surprised me. And the second one is, the question might not have been asked, but how are these two going to relate to Congress? Because we know that nothing, like somebody just said, change won't happen unless they can work with Congress. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Colin? Um, I don't know if this can completely answers the question. I was talking to some mainstream Republicans, not Trump supporters last night, uh, people who are Republican operatives. One thing they say, maybe they're just consoling themselves these days, but they're saying, look, if she gets elected, we raise money off of her. We win congressional seats off of her. We win Senate seats off of her. Uh, what they're telling themselves right now is they don't like Trump. They, don't, they wouldn't necessarily be happy to see him as president, but they see Clinton as somebody they can operate against for four or eight years to depending on uh, how long she stays. I think, you know, one of the more amazing moments about all of what's going on right now, at least one of the most amazing things about what's going on today, is that there are so many people on the Republican side of the aisle who clearly believe that Donald Trump is unfit to be president. Um, But their dislike for Hillary Clinton and the Clinton family sort of legacy is just so powerful that they're willing to place in the White House someone who they really believe is unfit to be president. That is an astonishing moment in our American political system. Under a minute, uh, Colin, I want to go back to you. So where does Trump and Clinton go from here for that October 9th debate? Well, I think what you'll see, first of all, is a lot of advertising based on this debate. Uh, there's a lot of things that can be turned into sound bites on both sides, but obviously Clinton has more material to work with. I guess the question, you know, heading towards October in terms of the next debate is, can, I mean, Bilal alluded to this, can handlers work with this guy? Can they get, think, can they get him to raise his game? And there really is maybe some fundamental, almost biological question. Is he able to hang in there for 90 minutes at a full level of concentration? I think last night raised questions about that, just whether he's got that capacity. Capacity. He's been talking about fitness, health, and stamina, uh, and he managed to raise that question about himself. Thank you, Colin McEnroe. Also, Bilal Saku, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks so much for your calls and your emails, your tweets. This is where we live.